Welcome to the Center for Lit Podcast Network. You're listening to How to Eat an Elephant, a little book club for large books. Have you ever cast your eyes across a shelf full of classics and been driven screaming from the room by 500-page monsters with thick spines and important names? Then this is the show for you. We're here to take on these scary books together, because how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. Well, hello, friends, and welcome back to the show. It's How to Eat an Elephant. I'm joined, as always, by Megan and Emily, who are, look, who are looking at me like a fool for that little break in the action. How are you guys doing this morning? Great. Listen, you don't have to continuously provide sinews and ligaments to all of our disparate comments. No, it's true. Your job is much harder. I mean, we actually tried an episode without you recently and really missed the sinews and ligaments, as you call them. <laughs> well, good. That makes me feel better. <clears throat> Anyways, is it a good morning? Are you feeling perky? Are you feeling glib? Uh, yeah. Well, I don't know about glib. There's a lot of um, listeners we meet in the mornings. And this we chapter do. has a lot we of do. blood and screaming and, and <laughs> people dying on stretchers. And I feel a little bit like that was early for me. Like, Did you I'm, read it this morning also? No, but you know how you, you like go over it because you're going to talk about it. And you, there's a microphone and it's really official. So I went over it. I, just, I had my first sip of morning coffee. And I just, there was just screaming. There's lots of screaming, like pitiful moaning. And I was like, yeah, oh, pitiful this moaning. Is early for the pitiful moaning. <laughs> <laughs> I felt exactly the same way. My stomach was just a little queasy yeah. over all of this. I mean, Tolstoy turning his attention to describing the details of medical practice on a battlefield in this era. Not my favorite. I should have expected it because he, he describes everything with such detail. I mean, I'll never forget the little downy mustache on, you know, whatever the <laughs> princess's name in the earliest part of the story. The same attention to detail is going to be applied here. But it's, uh, yeah, it's riveting in a gross way. Emily, did you find it riveting in a gross way? Uh, yes, although I guess maybe I am a little Napoleon-esque. My reason has been darkened. It did not affect me as much. Ooh. Oh my goodness. All right. Remind me not to walk down dark alleys with you. <laughs> what I expect from you at this point, Emily, is that you have your eyes so firmly fixed on the overarching narrative and the big thematic reasons for each scene that their details, while uh, obvious to you, aren't sucking you all the way in. She's playing the chess to... game, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, I we're all do. playing checkers and Emily's playing chess. No, it's not that. It's the bad sense of chess like Napoleon. I tend to be a little scientific sometimes in my reading, which is not good. And it means that I'm not always as effective as I should be. However, in this scene, I was very moved by the conclusion of Andre's oh, yeah. little conflict, which I'm excited to talk about. I agree. Let's dive into that. So we open here, by the way, if you listeners are following along, we are in volume three, part two, and our section for the day opens in chapter 36. As Prince Andre's regiment in the Battle of Borodino is standing still, submitting to cannon fire for an entire day. Mm -hmm. They're not advancing. They aren't fighting. They aren't resisting. They are standing or sitting, he says, docilely in a field while being pelted with cannon fire for an entire day. 
it seems to me that the men waiting for the progress of history is just another instance of that theme that's been taking place in this section with uh, that tension between wanting to engage in affairs and just having to sit back and wait for it. And I thought it was interesting that it describes uh, what the, the attention of the men gets fixated on. They're, they're not looking at the wounded or killed. Uh, they do occasionally look at the advance of the enemy, but the greatest attention, it says, was accorded to totally extraneous events which had no relation to the battle. It was as if the attention of these morally exhausted men found rest in these ordinary, everyday events. And they their attention is um, drawn by a dog that comes into camp and just these absolutely um, ordinary things things and this momentous occasion is what draws their attention and it seems to be emblematic of what Tolstoy has been saying about how life goes in the rest of this section. Right and it fits into the larger conversation about providence versus like the uh what's the word for like man's action. Can he decide for himself where his life is going or is it predestined outside of him? And what effect does that have on the, on the mindset of a man, right? Here they are standing there waiting, actionless, because they haven't been given a directive and they're getting mown down by the hundreds, you know? And he's basically making them a case study. Standing there for eight hours in this waiting period, what does that do to the mind of a man under the relentless terror of death? And they're, they're standing steadfast, but they're pale and wan and trying to find comfort in the little everyday things. Like you said, the dog who walks across their path or something falls off of a cart that's trundling past and they all, you know, they all laugh about it for a moment and they try to zero in on the things that would normalize something in the face of, of the ultimate. Yeah, it gives them rest, it says, to fixate on on the present, on what's actually around them, instead of looking at, they have no power in the larger battle situation. Yeah. There was a moment, um, it's, it's later on, and I don't want to jump there yet, but it ties in where nature is personified in rain. Rain comes pouring down mm. over the battlefield or, or lightly misting, chapter, yeah. really. And it's as if nature has a voice and she's saying, stop fighting. You're not achieving anything. How about you just rest? You know, the the voice of nature is peace and calm. And it seemed to resonate with this moment here. This everyday life is comforting to you. The, the natural world around you calls you to true rest in spite of all of the ultimate events going on around you. What do you guys think of that? Well, I, it's interesting because I think this is the first section or set of chapters in which uh, fate history, which was really impersonal at the beginning of our story and potentially nihilistic and meaningless, became providence later on. Yeah. Um, providence is what directs events. But in this section, it's personified. Mm -hmm. It's him. He, the one who directs our events. Yeah, We're finally given too. a personhood of someone directing the course of events. And it's interesting that that seems to be, like, I don't know if that's purposeful that he's uh, zeroing in on that conversation, finally locating all, all hope in God um, here at the end of his story. But it seems that this, uh, the individualized personhood of both God and nature is interesting in this moment. I, I'm confused. And 
this is where I've been sitting here quietly contemplating why you guys say brilliant, wonderful things. And thank you for carrying the show thus far. But I, <laughs> I'm confused because I think Tolstoy is contradicting himself just a hair in this section. And I can't quite put my finger on what it is. Maybe you guys can help me. But it feels as though his emphasis on providence or what, like you said, he's just now calling it providence, which I also noticed and thought was really cool. But his emphasis on the course of history and swarm life and all these things we've been talking about all along leads us to look at this war, at all the battles that are taking place, and shrug our shoulders and say, what a waste. What a waste of men. What a waste of blood. What a waste of young lives. This, this was fundamentally awful and meaningless. And that seems to have been his emphasis all along. And now... In this section, he completely does an about face and says, this is actually Providence, um, the Russians standing for eight hours and submitting to cannon fire is actually spirited, and the Napoleonic um, scourge is sent home with its tail between its legs because they've encountered someone with more moral character than they themselves. Like, it's as though he... He flips the script and retreats into some sort of quasi-Christian Russian nationalism. And I love it, and I want him to talk about the world that way, but it doesn't seem consistent. What am I missing? I noticed that too. And I think one of the ways that I subconsciously put it in context was assigned it the Swarm Life title. And his whole theory so far has been both and, a multiplicity of causes, a multiplicity of explanations for each event. And it seems to me that this great tragedy, this great loss of Russian life is, for him, looking at history, both a great loss, senseless violence, and also purposeful, all at the same time. And he's trying to have his cake and eat it too. The other thing going on, I think, connects to that individuality and personal relationship we were talking about in that thus far in the novel, our characters have been after the grandiose, just like Napoleon is after the grandiose trying to, uh, I imagine Tolstoy saying they're trying to make meaning capital M out of history and they can't do that because they're not God. They don't have the authority to create meaning Mm. out of history for themselves. And now in this section, Everything is so personal. It's uh, Everyone is personally invested in the situation. I think that's embodied by the uh, interaction that takes place between Anatole and Andre. Um, and that kind of grows out of that and into the fact that the soldiers are here uh, standing their ground for, for Mother Russia, for personal reason they're involved in this, not to make a name for themselves, not to make meaning out of this moment, but just hanging on for dear life so that the French don't invade their homes. Um, when everything becomes personalized in that way, it yes, there's a meaning to it. And that affirms what we've been hoping all along, which is that Tolstoy is not denying meaning. It's not He's not a nihilist. Right. There is a meaning behind things. It's just... Um, Impenetrable to the individual until they lose themselves in the particulars of their existence. And it's very individual. Right. It's both not 
their own because it's being set by a personal deity outside of them, but also very much their own because it's just the common the common stuff of life that mm. is their concern, not trying to be God. It's both human and divine meaning. That's awesome. That really, really helps me. And yeah, it puts this this first chapter with Andre uh, into context for me because all these particulars you guys are talking about, he's, he's rubbing this particular plant. I think it's wormwood, which is interesting, actually. <laughs> A little symbolism there. Anyway, he's rubbing wormwood between his, between his hands and he's smelling it. And the, the, the natural world around him is, is offering him definition that none of his intellectual flailing that he's been engaged in since we've known the boy um, remains. It's all stripped away. And, there's a relief in that that I felt really keenly as I read. Um, and maybe it's because I'm, well, I guess about Andre's age. Uh, it could be that it's common to, to young men, but there's this impulse to affirm yourself, to ratify your existence by thinking about things really, really hard and figuring them out, solving your life like a puzzle, solving your existence like a puzzle so that you can know who you are and what you're about and that it is good. And I and Andre has been engaged in this just like Pierre has, and one one hears in this section just like Napoleon has, um, forever. And in the crush of battle, which feels less like a crush and more just like an oppressive pall decimation, right? yeah, yeah, <laughs> as they're standing there just getting slaughtered, Megan. It's not in the hundreds; it's in the thousands. I know they lose half of their army, half of it. I mean, astonishing numbers of dead. He can't think anymore because, of course, you can't because. Because you're just an animal after all, an animal with soul, an animal with reason, but you're an animal. Fear takes you over and the only comfort is the grass and the trees and the natural world and the fact that you were never defining yourself in the first place. Yeah, it's like a, it's like his blue sky moment all over again. Yeah, but, but more important. It seems to me that it's more important. I can't really put my finger on why, but it's final in some way. Well, not in this chapter, though. I mean, I'm I'm keeping my eyes trained on this first chapter where the bomb explodes and, you know, he mm-hmm. gets blown to smithereens. What he says is, can this be death? Same tone as the blue sky moment. I can't. I don't want to die. I love life. I love this grass, the earth, the air. But it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't get specific yet. In this moment, right before the explosion happens, it's just the blue sky moment again. There's something in this natural world that calls for me to love it, but it's not specific. I'm not sure yet what it is. He says at the end of this chapter, as he's considering what has happened to him, that he's still he's still questioning what will be there mm-hmm. off in the in the the next world, and what has there been here? Why was I so sorry to part with life? There was something in this life that I didn't and still don't understand. So yes. that's why I say it's like his blue sky moment again. We're brought back to that mindset of there's something bigger than me. There's some purpose outside of me that gives me hope and makes me love life. But I still don't quite know what it is. And I hope I don't go before I find out. Yep. I do think I, I was trying to find the blue sky moment and I should have found it before this section. But I think that's an interesting comparison. And I think the tone is actually slightly different if my memory serves me correctly because 
it is the same impulse. He looks at the blue sky and sees that there's something much bigger than him that he's a part of, that he's attracted to. But I think he kind of concludes on a nihilistic note, saying something to the effect of it's meaningless in the face of this blue, blue, vast existence. Um, the, the blueness is what's real, and my petty endeavors are not what's real. And I'd love to go back and look at that because what I think is going on here is a bit, again, a bit more personal. I love this grass, the earth, the air. He is personally attached to his own life and his own relationship with these surroundings Hmm. in a way that he really hasn't been before. He's been obsessed with making something of himself. But like you were saying, Ian, here he's not. He's... It's accepting some kind of givenness of life, but being personally invested in it in a way that I haven't seen him do before. Well, okay, so not to make it even a shade more complicated, but there's the there's the invest investing in life. I love the trees. I love the grass. I love the earth. I love the air. And in that moment, I think all of the the beautiful uh, elevated intellectual things that both of you just said about it are all 100 percent true. What I saw instead was something very practical. I have a memory of getting really, really sick while camping. <laughs> and I was, I mean, I was deathly ill. I, I was that combination of, of nausea and just, I, I just felt so bad. Like, like that moment that everyone's had at least once where they go, oh, I just wish I were dead. This is terrible, <laughs> right? But then I was looking around and there's this beautiful tree. And the beautiful tree wasn't sick. The beautiful tree would still be there when I was done being sick. The beautiful tree was there before I had gotten sick, right? Like there, it was, it was aloof. It sounds like you had a very Tolstoy moment. You had a blue sky moment. (laughs) Yeah. Well, yeah, it was separated from my, from my sickness in the, and the way that I felt was demonstrated to be passing by the presence of this beautiful tree. And if I could just escape in my head from how I was feeling and contemplate instead the the unchanging or at least very slowly changing beauty of this tree I was looking at that could distract me from and elevate me out of my sickness. That's what I see going on with Andre until the human element enters again. Right. With the sergeant standing there having already been wounded, having already had his wounds dressed, and now firmly back in the swing of nationalism and pride telling a f- some sort of fake story to the rest of his compadres about how they are absolutely kicking the crap out of the French out there on the battlefield. And Andre sees that. He sees this man and his shining black eyes and the passion that he is engaged in. And that's what leads him to put two and two together about what it is that he that he's missing in life or that he's missing something about his life. And so I think that's really important for us to notice that there's a there's a natural, um, what what maybe we could call kinship with the earth and the created order that comes w- along with man being an animal. And that's what causes him to have this blue sky moment and, and look at the trees and the grass. Then there's a human element, people with souls, things with souls have some sort of communion. Which is a transition, that phrase, he's got a, he's having a passionate fit of love for life. Life is, is, um, there's a multiplicity to it. There's a diversity. It's a many faceted thing. And he focuses first on the natural world. But I think you're right to notice that it transitions into relational, personal, powerful Which waters. it didn't in the blue sky moment. Right. 
And this might be the thing that keeps it from going in a nihilistic direction once again. I agree. And to and to pull that back to our conversation about Tolstoy and history, the personal is what is the antidote to nihilism there too for Tolstoy, right? The individual and the human. Emily, what do you think about that? I yeah, I think that's good. I I've been kind of fixating on the fact that this moment in this chapter doesn't it's not quite enough. Um mm-hmm. he well, it ends with a question still. I agree. Right? That's kind of what I was meaning to say. By it, it did echo the blue sky moment a little bit because he still yes. didn't make it all the way to the end. And well, no, because he's thinking, I, I don't want to die. I love life. He's having this profound moment in which uh, he's coming to some realization about himself. And he sees this officer who wants him to get down. It's like uh, he, he wants him to preserve his life. And it's like Andre has this last fit of trying to attain glory and he turns to the adjutant and says shame on you officer what and then you know then that's when it explodes he's caught out in this like cognitive dissonance where he's thinking one thing um not wanting to die and then turns around and and flails at this officer for wanting to preserve his life. It's, I don't know, it's a strange moment to end this scene on. And so to tie it back to what your your question, what you were saying, yeah, I think that this personal interaction he has with Anatole in the next chapter is is necessary to finish this conversation. Okay, well, let's go there. But we I do want to kind of do it in order because, man, every single moment of this chapter is carefully constructed. So... First, we get Andre being uh, bumped to the front of the line as one of the masters, right? There's a little meditation on that. He looks around at the sea of naked, bloody flesh and remembers the pool, right? Mm -hmm. And his disgust in that moment, which I thought was a pretty cool callback. Then he watches the guy next to him, who is as yet unidentified, get his legs sawed off. Nope. Then he gets a kiss on the lips. I was going to say, no, 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 no. I, there's I'm, a strange. I'm, no, kiss there's not. On the it's lips. not. It, we're not there yet. I promise you. They're wa- you watch him get his legs sawn off first. Oh yeah, you're then right. Then they say undress him. He has that memory of his childhood, right? Then he loses consciousness and wakes up after the operation, and the doctor kisses him on the lips. I was building up to that, and y'all oh, stole sorry. my thunder. Come on now, girls. I think it's still funny. Okay. Then he realizes who he's looking at. Don't know that that's important. Haven't really thought about why, but it does happen in that order. He sees the operation. He then is unconscious for his own operation. And then he wakes up to find that the person who had his legs sawed off was Anatole. Now that I'm in a more literary frame of mind reading this section, I can see that the doctor kissing him on the lips has a lot of beautiful symbolism to it that we can talk about at length. But uh, when I was reading it, I just kind of circled it and thought, what in the world? (laughs) He kissed me on my bottom. (laughs) For those of you that don't understand why Emily talked about someone getting kissed on the bottom, it's a reference to the IT crowd, one of our very favorite shows. Go and watch. Uh, Go find it. You won't be sorry. sweet meats are not for sale. sale. (laughs) He kissed me on my bike bike rack. (laughs) Oh, it's funny. No, I agree. I think that... um, Ian, I was just focusing on that transition that you and I were just talking about of the relational element creeping in, the personal 
um, relationship giving new meaning to all of Andre's questions about the beauty of life. And it seems to come through physicality here at the beginning of this chapter, the the re-emphasis on the bodies of the men around him and that memory to the, the bodies like cannon fodder fill him with horror. But then, um, I don't know, that physicality continues as he watches an operation and undergoes an operation and then the doctor kisses him on the lips. It's all very physical and up close and personal. Maybe that's supposed to be thematic. Well, yeah, I mean, first of all, I'm not over the fact that that's weird that the it's doctor weird. kisses him on the lip. It's I mean, very weird. I feel like that's not very sanitary. I mean, you're covered in other people's blood. Like, and also, why? Uh, why does he do that? But it is this. I, I, there's a symbolism to being uh, another human being, intimately. Uh, the one who heals you even, kissing you on the lips. It's like he's brought back out of the realm. He's been living in this, um, Tolstoy calls it in in regard to Napoleon, a phantom world of ideas in which he's made himself this godlike character. Andre has absolutely been living that life. And here in this moment, he, he gets a kiss on the lips from another human being and he's brought From another man sorry <laughs> he's brought down into the human world and it's that moment that he's able to look at his sworn enemy an enemy that was created for him because of that phantom life he was living in which he was more dedicated to the idea of natasha's womanhood than her actual personality it draws him back and he's able to love his enemy there's something really beautiful about that. Yeah, I agree with you. I just think it's it, not to harp on it again, but it. I the more I read it, the more I think it matters, the progression of these events through the chapter. He doesn't walk in, recognize Anatole, then watch him get his legs sawn off, then have this overflow of love for him. Mm-hmm. Like he has no idea who this man is. It's just human suffering yep. of the very kind that he himself is undergoing. And that is what draws his heart out towards this person. And by the time he recognizes the man as as Anatole, um, the identification that's taken place between the two of them is too strong to admit any kind of vengeful, bitter feelings. It's almost as though he's saved, is what it seems to me. The situation has saved saved him from his bitterness. Um, and I think that's it's kind of beautiful. Hmm. And it, there's all this language of, of childhood. Did you notice that? Like being undressed by the um, the surgeon's assistant takes him back to this place in his mind of being a kid. And there are lots of, of feelings associated with it. But the one that stuck out to me was lack of control again. Being taken right? care of. Yeah. yeah. I'm a child. Everyone, everyone around me is making all the important decisions about who I am, about what I'm wearing, about what I'm not wearing, when I'm wearing it, when I'm not wearing it, if I'm going to bed, if I'm awake. Whether it's daytime or nighttime, like all of these things are happening without me having to think about it. And what a great life this is. And and he feels that again. And that participates in his vision of Anatole as well. It's uh, well, and the childhood feeling comes up again. Andre is saved. He's been in excruciating pain. And it's one of the happiest moments in his life when he wakes up and he's not in pain. Even though he, he's not out of the woods. He's not better but he's not in pain anymore and it's like this kiss of salvation for him which 
physically seems to represent a more spiritual salvation that's taking place. Uh, it's it's uh, childlike. He right. he's been restored to love for his fellow man. So I think it's really interesting to me that, well, I'm just going to read it. And suddenly a new and unexpected memory from the world of childhood, purity, and love came to Prince Andre. He remembered Natasha as he had seen her for the first time at the ball in 1810 with her slender neck and arms, with her frightened, happy face, ready for rapture. And in his soul, love and tenderness for her awakened stronger and more alive than ever. That's identified with childhood as well, which is a remarkably self-aware comment from young Andre. I don't think he's ever at any point in this story considered himself a child. Uh, he's considered himself a grown-up. He's considered himself a thinker, an intellectual uh, power of some kind. And now he looks back on that period of his life and says, oh, I was a child. Things were beautiful then. They aren't now. I've grown and not in a good way. <laughs> well, yeah, he it's a moment of repentance. It mm -hmm. says he wept tender, loving tears over people, over himself and over there and his own heirs. Right. It's finally a clear moment of self-sight on his part. And what comes out of that self-sight, acknowledging his own childishness is is compassion and and friendship. He looks across the room and sees himself in Anatole Karagin, which I think is it's heartrendingly beautiful. It's just spectacular. Which makes me wonder when he says, uh, uh, compassion, love for our brothers, for those who love us, for those who hate us, for our enemies. Yes, that love which God preached on earth, which Princess Maria taught me and which I didn't understand. That's why I was sorry about life. That's what was still left for me if I was to live. But now it's too late. Is it too late? First of all, he's still alive, even though he, he seems to be foretelling his own death here. But he just had this moment. It's already happened. Why is it too late? I, this line was confusing to me, too. And it, you and I read it in opposite ways, although your, yours is much more, as usual, grammatically supportable. Um, <laughs> I read it as, it's too late, death. Ha ha, I know it now. Oh, what? <laughs> <laughs> Which, of course, there's no reason to, right. to think that What about the little phrase, if yeah. I was to live, which yeah. directly mm -hmm. precedes it? I, no, you're right. I see that now. I see that now. I like your reading, though. I, I wish that <laughs> was it. <laughs> Anyways, moving on. So there's really dramatic, dramatic contrast between this beautiful moment and Napoleon. Who is in the first... Um, full paragraph here, given the opportunity to have this same realization as Andre. Yep. It's his first human moment. He's, um, he's suffering himself. He's not doing well. And that suffering allows him to see with clear eyes the dead and wounded around him. Uh, personal human feeling for a brief moment got the upper hand over that artificial phantom of life which he had served so long he transferred to himself the sufferings and death he had seen on the battlefield. The heaviness in his head and chest reminded him of the possibility of his own suffering and death. That seems pretty hopeful there for a minute. Same Don't thing. stop there. At that moment, he wanted for himself neither Moscow nor victory nor glory. What more glory did he need? Yeah, yeah it's exactly the same thing that happened with Andre 
uh, seeing the suffering of Anatole before he knew who Anatole was, um, suffering himself, this connection of suffering that happens to Napoleon. And the only explanation that it doesn't go through that I can find is that it's a, um, it's like the Lord hardening Pharaoh's heart kind Mm -hmm. of situation here that he has a role to play in history that's been predestined and he doesn't get to have that moment of salvation that Andre has. That line that, that you're referencing, Emily, I love the phrasing of it. He began to obediently fulfill that cruel, sad, oppressive, and inhuman role which had been assigned to him. Okay, so this is where my confusion comes from, I think, that we already dealt with and talked about. But I want to point it out to the listeners so that I don't sound like a complete moron. Um, So (laughs) right after the line Megan just read, this is how it continues. And not only for that hour and day were reason and conscience darkened in this man, who more than all the other participants in this affair bore upon himself the whole weight of what was happening, but never to the end of his life was he able to understand goodness or beauty or truth or the meaning of his own actions, which were too much the opposite of goodness and truth, and too far removed from everything human for him to be able to grasp their meaning. He could not renounce his actions, extolled by half the world, and therefore he had to renounce truth and goodness and everything human. Okay, hang hang on just a second there, Leo. Just one minute. Have you, in fact, passed complete and total judgment (laughs) on a human being with a soul? I thought that too. I've got it in the margins, like triple underlined. This is really heavy handed. I mean, it's like an absolute condemnation of the man's soul as if he knows him and has been inside his head and the interworkings of his heart. And it seems like overstepping to me. It does to me too. And it's also, it's all predicated on more than all the other participants in this affair. He bore upon himself the whole weight of what was happening. He has been telling us that Napoleon thinks that about himself but that it isn't really true for chapter upon chapter upon chapter. And now here he comes riding into the fray on a white stallion and says, yeah, you know what? Forget about that. This is all Napoleon's fault. And he relinquished his right to humanity in this moment and never got it back as long as he lived. And he's now burning in hell. Well, okay, Tolstoy, fine. And, but you're doing that thing that you have been, standing above and refusing to do this whole book. That's where my confusion comes in, I think. Mm -hmm. I agree. I also agree. I think he's written himself into a tight spot. And then the only way to kind of give him some compassion for this is if you see him using Napoleon as an idea. Right. Instead of, um, he's an instance and he's an example. He's not a character necessarily. He's a force in this book. I agree with that. I just have a I have a hard time um, sticking to it because Tolstoy immediately goes to referencing real Napoleon's letters, real Napoleon the man who wrote this. Emily, death. to clarify, you're right. That is the only way to exonerate Tolstoy. Right. I just don't think we can do it. I mean, Megan's right. He qu- he quotes the man at length well, for the next two pages. One thing I tried to do as I was reading is remember that Tolstoy is also he's writing the Russian anthem a little bit. Right. And he's maybe this is straying into nationalism again. And he's basically saying Napoleon has this perspective on the Russian conflict and I am presenting you with another reading. Well, and he, he does jump back in and say after the first excerpt, which is just astonishing in its hubris, 
Um, Tolstoy says he, referring to Napoleon, Napoleon predestined by providence for the sad, unfree role of executioner of the peoples, assured himself that the goal of his actions was the good of the peoples. So like, he tries to put, to pull it back a little bit. Maybe I can see him writing it. He's like, oh, this is a great quotation. Oh my God, I put that in there. And then he stops and he goes, oh yes, I see. Oh, right. Okay, he's unfree. It, it's predestined by providence. Oh, but there's another one. This yeah. one's so good too. And then he goes, <laughs> he goes he right back at it loud. again. Yeah. <laughs> he goes right back to it. There's a second quotation. We're in, and this is, this is the, the big conclusion to the section. I'm just going to read it because, oh my goodness. This is just like, what I said earlier in the day is that is that Tolstoy bloodies his knuckles on the reputation of the great man. I mean, this is so intense. He imagined, Napoleon imagined that the war with Russia had come about by his will, and the horror of what happened did not strike his soul. Okay, it, you literally gave us a moment where it struck his soul two, two pages ago. Anyway, he boldly took upon himself all responsibility for the event. And his darkened reason saw his justification in the fact that among the hundreds of thousands of men who perished, there were fewer Frenchmen than Hessians and Bavarians. I can see a that couple things. Dis- okay, but what I see, and then I'll let you go, and you can you can moderate me because I need to be moderated here, obviously. But <laughs> what I see here is derision and rejection and judgment of the First Order. Tolstoy stands firmly above Napoleon and is judge, jury, and executioner. I will say I expect more from Tolstoy than that after a whole book full of the most beautifully complicated characters with shades of meaning everywhere and facets all over the place. This is this is a retreat into a level of caricature that is not like him. It seems beneath so, him. It seems beneath him a little bit. So rescue me, Emily. What, what, where am I going wrong here? Well, you say it's caricature, but he allows Napoleon to speak in his own words. He's not putting words in Napoleon's mouth. He's quoting from the man's own memoirs written on St. Helena. So what you're going to do, these are words that Napoleon actually wrote for himself. True. I will push back just slightly and say he is inserting those words at a moment that Tolstoy himself has chosen, the Battle of Borodino. And has, as a historian himself, decided was the turning point of the war, in which Napoleon made some legendarily bad decisions. And he has paired those two things up to give a particular sense of the scenario. And it's impossible, obviously, to read these letters without hearing the arrogance and the hubris and the blindness of Napoleon. That's fair. But the contrast is heightened intentionally. I agree. And I think the moment is actually really important, given the thematic heft of the rest of our chapters for today. It's a moment in which humanity comes knocking on Napoleon's door and he rejects it. Mm. And what Tolstoy talks about from that point on is the moral victory of the war. It's not physical. Um, He's not a tactician in this moment. He's not talking to us. He's not trying to interpret how decisions that commanders made won this battle. What he's talking about is a moral victory. And I think that the French lose that moral aspect of the war, that moment that Napoleon rejects the feeling of uh, common suffering for his fellow man. And that is just a comment on what we saw between Andre and Anatole, that the real victory going on here is one of fellow feeling Hmm. brotherly love. I love that. And and Napoleon rejects it here. Yeah. That makes sense of the, 
the duality of his character. On the one hand, Napoleon is just a character in Tolstoy's narrative. Like you were saying, Emily, he's a symbol of an idea. And as such, Tolstoy is moving him around to make a thematic point. Andre sees the fellowship of human suffering, chooses that, and finds redemption. Napoleon, the character, sees human suffering, rejects it, thinks himself above it, and goes on to, you know, ruin. So from a literary standpoint, from an author's standpoint, he's using Napoleon as a symbol of an idea to underscore his point. I just think I see what Ian's saying also about uh, Tolstoy being choosy as a historian and using the words of the real man to accomplish his own purpose in his work of art. And that's a it's a dodgy thing in some <laughs> I mean, ways. Yeah. On the one hand, he's, he's an artist and he gets to do what he wants and it's effective. I'm tremendously effective, effective enough that it felt like a body blow. I mean, as I was, and it's not like I sympathize with Napoleon or anything, but as I was reading, it feels like I've just witnessed murder. Like, like we've seen character assassination. You here. have hated him in your like, heart, Tolstoy. Have you, guys seen, have you guys seen A Knight's Tale? Yeah. Do you remember when the Jeffrey Chaucer character played immortally for the ages by Paul Bettany? <laughs> yes. Walks naked into the scene, stares at someone and says, I will eviscerate you in fiction. <laughs> that is what has taken place yeah. here. Tolstoy has just eviscerated this man in fiction. And it's, well, striking and effective. Here we are reading it hundreds of years later. So anyways, oh, my goodness, you guys. So are there any aspects of this final chapter that haven't already been eloquently expressed? Well, yeah, there's one. I mean, the last chapter in our in our section, I think it's the last one, 39, yeah. Um, he steps back and analyzes the historical moment one more time. And like Emily was emphasizing, says, from the perspective of the future, I'm looking back at this event and I have decided, this is Tolstoy speaking, this battle, the Battle of Borodino, was the climax of the war. From this moment, it's like a watershed moment. And this is when the moral victory happens for the Russians. The French prove insufficient morally, and they're going to lose it from here. I thought that was an interesting way for his part to end. Again, given that his his word on historians has been um, your your job, you're fighting a losing battle, right? You can't actually determine causes and effects. When you look back on history, you're trying to play God and good luck with that job. He steps in and becomes a historian here and, and you know, tries to explain causes and effects. I thought that was strange and a little bit of a contradiction. And I agree with you both that it's a tenuous moment and he does, he is in many ways contradicting himself here. I, I don't think you can escape that. Right. However, to take the part of Tolstoy my guess is that his answer would have something to do with that last line that he's been talking about historians and the way that they ascribe meaning to the will. He's saying you can't, uh, will has nothing to do with it. That has been a theme that he has harped on over and over again. But here, the Russians um, are an adversary stronger in spirit, hmm. not in will, in spirit. And when it comes to ascribing meaning, I think Tolstoy says, yeah, it's in the spirit that it matters. Hmm. What, that meaning matters? Uh, that um, that it goes back to his notion of swarm life directing 
the course of events and that uh, that motion of the swarm is directed by the spirit and the Russians had a stronger spirit at Borodino and that is the moment that France lost. And yes, it's absolutely contradictory, but I think that he's drawing a line between the will and the spirit in ascribing causes. Right. So though he is contradicting himself by stepping into the role of a historian, his takeaway is consistent with his worldview. That that causes, you can assign a cause based on the spirit of a people rather than the will. I think so. I think that's how he would put it anyway. Well, it looks like just from casting my eyes over onto the facing page, the beginning yeah. of part, <laughs> part whatever it is, four or something. Um, there's so many parts and so many sections and who in the heck knows where we are anymore. <laughs> Uh, we're going to get some pretty intense discussions. It looks like one of those philosophy breaks where Tolstoy goes, okay, look, I'm just really, really tired of having to relate all of this back to, to characters. So let's, I'm just going to preach at you for a minute. So sit tight and here we go. And he's going to give us a, a little vision of history. So maybe, maybe Emily's uh, prognostications will prove correct here in our next episode. Well, hopefully we'll get some explanation. Yeah. Yeah. In the meantime, thank you both for your insights. This has been a wonderful and lively discussion. And I had a great time, as I hope you did as well. And as I hope you listeners did, we're as always grateful for the fact that you decided to spend half an hour or so with us. Please do jump into the discussion on Facebook. There is a group of us who who kick around these ideas and who are reading together. And we'd absolutely love to have you join us. As always, please like and comment. And we will see you next time around on How to Eat an Elephant. Bon appétit. Bon appétit. Want to follow along with our reading? You can find a link to the schedule in the show notes for this episode. How to Eat an Elephant is a part of the Center for Lit podcast network. Visit our website at www.centerforlit.com to find our other literary shows, resources, and our membership program, The Pelican Society where you can get access to a variety of live discussion groups. You can also find us on most social media channels. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, happy reading.